first thing in the morning, as soon as you wake up, the to-do list starts. Does the car need gas? Hopefully those leftovers are still good. Why did I get CC'd on the <laughs> No. You can't escape the to-do list, but you can make the most of your me time with a relaxing shower using Method Hair Care products. Try Pure Peace Volumizing, Simply Nourish Moisturizing, or Daily Zen Shampoo and Conditioner for daily use. All formulated with long-lasting fragrances and are safe for color-treated hair. Reconnect with the best version of yourself. Visit MethodProducts.com to unleash your inner shower. Hello, welcome to Sir Clown Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. Uh, today is the day. It is the not-that-long-awaited uh, Ask Me Anything episode. You guys send in great questions, hundreds of questions, which I'm grateful for, uh, and I'm going to try my best to answer them. But to keep me honest, as always, I've asked somebody to, to join me here, and in this case, it is the man, the myth, the legend, my mysterious producer and engineer, Jeffrey Geld. How's it going? Good, man. How are you? I'm well. How are things? Hey, you know. <laughs> Ask me in an hour and a half. Yeah, fair enough. Well, we're gonna we're gonna get some hard hitting questions here. Keep you honest. Right. What's up first? So Pratik wants to know, uh, and I'm I'm not sure I totally agree with the premise of this question, and that you are here to uh, convince people of anything. Uh, but he asks if you believe that changing someone's mind about a topic, any topic, is difficult. How do you function as a journalist where your ultimate goal? he presumes, is to show your readers the reality and try to sway their mindset towards the, quote, right one. If you add to that the polarization and our intertwined identities, it seems even more challenging to convince someone of an idea. So it's true. My book has a lot on this. And the, the way I'd put it is I don't think it is impossible to change people's minds in normal circumstances. If you if like we're deciding where to go for dinner and I say, oh, I like I like this pizza place. And you say, yeah, but, you know, I've been to this other one and it has better reviews on Yelp. You could change my mind about where to go for dinner or even possibly who has better pizza pretty easily. The place where it gets really hard is and I, I have a I have a chapter on the book that's one of the things that kind of most informed my thinking ever uh, or changed my thinking ever about an idea called identity protective cognition. And so the idea is that once your identity is implicated in a view, the community you're a part of um, is holding you in part to that view, right, your group identity, it becomes very hard to change people's minds. Basically, they won't do it. Um, and if they do do it, it requires such an incredible effort and lift that uh, the idea that you're going to do it through like a newspaper op-ed or an article on Vox.com is, is very unlikely. So a couple things on this in terms of how it informs my work. One is, and I've talked about this on the show before, I have lost some faith in the idea that what I'm going to do is like write that somebody's wrong on the internet and convince everybody that they're wrong on the internet. I'll probably convince people who already agree with me. I can convince people who have a relationship with me, not easily, but that's very possible. So one thing is the fact that it's hard to convince somebody who is all the way on the other side from you doesn't mean you can't convince anybody. There are a lot of people on your side. And I think that giving people who are open to listening to me good facts and theories and ideas is, is a valuable piece of work to do. But the bigger thing, and this is partially why I've moved towards doing work like this show, is that persuasion is embedded in relationships um, and it's also embedded in your own openness to persuasion. And so this show is partially an effort to build a deeper relationship with an audience so people might trust me a little bit more. But it's also an effort, I think, to model for myself and to work on myself a project of 
being a little bit more open, of trying to come to things from a space more of curiosity than trying to find the conclusion, and allowing myself to be more often persuaded. I don't think it is very easy to get people to act in a way you yourself are not acting, and I don't think it's very easy to even kind of understand what are the barriers to that if you yourself have not sort of worked on them um, on your own time. And so, in a way, this show is not a – this show is, is part of my answer to what I think is a very hard question. So would you would you say that's your mission statement of the show? No, um, I, I don't really think of my primary mission to be honest as persuasion. Mm-hmm. That's a an outcome, um, and sometimes it's a good outcome, and I would like it to occur. Uh, and I think in some places I am. I mean, I'm really touched, and and I'll bring this up at the end. Uh, more often than any other question we got here, I got questions about veganism, and a lot. I get a lot of emails from people listening to the show say I've stopped eating meat, or I've started eating less meat, and I have like a little section of vegan questions we'll do at the end because I think some people want to listen to it, and other people, if I do eight of them all at once, are, are going to turn this off. So I there are places where people don't have a very strong identity built up where they're willing to move. But I'm not a journalist, to be honest, at least at the in the day-to-day way, because what I want to do is persuade you that you're wrong about something and I'm right. Um, that happens for me, for sure. I care about the things I write about. But what keeps me engaged in this work and this profession is I actually am very curious. Um, I like learning new things. I get very bored just pounding away at the same topic over and over and over again. Uh, it would be easy for me every day to write a thing about how other people on the internet are wrong about healthcare policy. I have strong opinions on that. They're very uh, – they're I think pretty well grounded in evidence. I've done a lot of political reporting there. I think I have a good sense of the situation. And it's – it doesn't – I don't know. I I don't think that's one. I'm not sure it'd be that useful to just. I think people kind of know where I sit on that. But the second is that it would not fulfill me at all. Like I like the work of learning new things. It is why I like being a journalist. I, I can keep learning forever, and so it's really exciting for me to do something like the climate series, where I was answering questions I actually and honestly had. Um, and it's a lot less exciting for me to offer a take on something that I've given my take on a bunch of times before. It's not that that is important. I think you do have to repeat things. And if you want to change people's opinions, you have to say it a bunch of times um, and come at it from a bunch of different angles. But if this work were just me believing I was right and then trying to tell everybody else why they should be right like me instead of wrong like they currently are, I wouldn't do it for very long. That wouldn't be a fulfilling life for me. Well, I can tell you, I, I for one, am a victim of your persuasion. I uh, went from subscribing to a meat delivery service last year to completely cutting meat out of my diet. Yes. Uh, because of things that you have said. So uh, there I you appreciate go. that. One down. Next question. So Matt wants to know, what do journalists need enough that they would leave Twitter for another social network? Feedback. Uh, the power of Twitter over journalists is almost 100% feedback. So imagine the life of a journalist. You work maybe for months, maybe for years even, but certainly for a while on a story. That story finally comes out. And then what? What happens for you? Does somebody throw you a parade? Do you get a medal? Like what, what happens so that that work closes out, has closure for you emotionally? And the answer is there has to be some feedback, some relationship to your audience. So there are different ways this can happen. Um, You know, traditionally, on the one hand, we got less what would seem like less feedback because, say, it was coming through letters to the editor or something. 
So maybe there was just less overall. But also, we tended to be working in more locally rooted institutions. Like you'd be a journalist writing for the LA Times and live in Los Angeles or the New York Times and live in New York or the Baltimore Sun and live in Baltimore. So your work was actually read by your like literal physical community. And so you you got some feedback on it through that in a way that was probably richer and, and oftentimes more fulfilling. What Twitter does, the central role it plays for journalists, are one, it's a very quick alert system to breaking news. I think this role is actually a little bit overstated because it's not like journalists have trouble figuring out when something is broken if they're not always on Twitter. It, it, it gets around. You got Slack. You can turn on the news. I mean, there's a lot of things happening. And a lot of times the breaking news on Twitter is wrong. But what Twitter does is it is the quickest way to see how people um, – even if not a representative subsample, are reacting to your article. And in particular, it is a collector of the feedback a lot of journalists truthfully care about most, which is how are their peers reacting to the feedback? How are the people they respect in the industry or even don't respect in the industry re uh, reacting to that feedback? That is what is addicting about it. Um, and not just, by the way, to their articles, but at some point it becomes its own thing. You start there posting up your articles, hoping people are going to like them. Then you realize that a tweet with a link tends to do much worse than a tweet without a link. So soon enough, the thing has become uh, the project unto itself. You're writing tweets to get feedback on your tweets, to see how many times they get retweeted, to influence the conversation through them. So the question is, is there somewhere journalists can go to get even more feedback than that in a richer way? Um, is there some kind of healthier form of feedback? And the answer right now is that it's hard uh, and a lot of other forms are toxic too. And it's just hard, right? Feedback is a hard thing to get addicted to. But once you do get addicted to it, it's a very, very hard addiction to break. And by the way, I have it as well. You know, like I write something and for all my complaints about Twitter, I go there and look to see how it's being received uh, because I want – I don't just want to scream into the void. It's one reason I value the emails I get on the show so much. They're an alternative and much richer form of feedback for me. Um, reading something that somebody sat down and wrote to me thoughtfully means a lot more to me than seeing a retweet or reading a tweet or whatever. But obviously for that exact reason, there's less of it. Um, and I'm lucky because I have this kind of big podcast and people do email me. So I get to I get to have that input. But a lot of people don't. So that's the the secret power of Twitter. I just think to generalize and to do a lesson for any industry and particularly for any public facing industry. Asking yourself, are the feedback loops healthy or unhealthy, I think is a really good question for active, for ultimately seeing if the industry is going to go well or poorly. So you said you you benefit from your, your listener feedback. Why do you think that's so much more beneficial? Do you think it's because there's a, a certain level of like vulnerability or sincerity that you can have when you're not kind of putting something out there in the public sphere? It's honestly just more interesting. Um, yeah, I think all the time about something that uh, Jenny O'Dell, who's on the show, um, wrote, and then we talked about this idea of like, what if we could spend more time saying the right things to the people who would understand them and less time trying to figure out how to say something to people with no context for us that they will not kill us for? <laughs> and that's how the emails feel. They feel like they're part of a conversation. They feel like we have context for each other. People spent more time than is reasonable hearing me in their ears and then often spend more time than is reasonable composing a letter to me. <laughs> and that's a richer interaction. There's more being discussed. There's more interesting things being said. There's more being shared. Uh, Twitter is very interesting. I don't want to call it uninteresting, but it's interesting in a very thin way. Um, it's like, oh, that's interesting. Like, that's a good point. Like, that's a sharp take. Like, that's a good joke. But there are threads and stuff happens. It's very big, right? So, you know, there's going to be some great noise in that signal or some great signal in that noise. But 
it isn't human in the same way. I, I feel like it's just it's the email is closer to having a conversation with someone, mm-hmm. um, whereas Twitter is Twitter. Well, I can, for one, empathize with the idea of having way too much of you in my ears for uh, any given time. So. <laughs> yeah, you're, you've, you've made bad life choices. <laughs> I guess so. Um, okay, moving on. So Jack would like to know if you believe in free will. Ooh, I like this question. Um, yes, but, and the but is bigger than the yes, um, but I think the part of a decision that should be understood as free will is a much smaller part of decision making than anybody uh, than than we tend to give it credit for. Which is to say, within a certain range, I have free will. Like right now, I'm staring at a uh, cup on the table, and it actually is the case that I can decide whether or not to like hold that cup and take a sip of water from it. Um, but the truth, of course, is that whether or not I decide to do that is going to be based on whether or not I feel thirsty. Um, it really is not about my will exactly. It's about the context in which I'm making my decision. And that ladders all the way up. The context in which we make our decisions, the societal influences, the economic and material influences, the things we have learned, the places we've come from, the genetic inheritances we've had, the personalities we've developed, they have so much more effect on how we react to a situation or what we choose to do in a situation than quote unquote free will. We are so much less independent of the world around us than we like to believe that I think the amount of decision-making and the amount of uh, action that is reducible down to somebody actually looked at all the alternatives and made a decision is pretty low. Again, not zero. You may, We make decisions all of the time, and they come from somewhere that would be relatively understood as free will. But even within that, I mean, people – we know this, right? People have very different levels of impulse control. And so it is true that when somebody cuts you off in traffic that – both you and I are making a decision, like in some ways a free decision, whether or not to flick them off or to like roll down our window at the next thing and scream at them or to get into a fight. But I'm a I'm an extremely emotionally controlled person, often to a fault. Uh, I don't think that is a decision I made. That is something in my emotional, psychological makeup that I don't have control over. I'm not able to stop being that way when I would like to stop being that way. It just, it's part of me. And by the same token, a lot of people um, who like will make that decision to flick somebody off or get into a fight, they're not exactly making that decision. It's just happening in them. And so in some ways, free will is both true and a useful societal illusion because I think it's important at some level to assign responsibility if only to incentivize people to make good decisions. But I think it's just a much smaller part of the decision matrix and people want to believe. And I'll say um, my coming book, Why We're Polarized, uh, pre-order now. (laughs) My coming book is very heavily about this for politics. It is very much about the idea that the decisions people are making in politics that we think of as decisions individuals are making are much more systemic incentives they are responding to. And the way we storytell about American politics, where we're constantly, you know, telling you about this meeting inside the campaign and somebody said something to the other person, and then they decide that like that makes it seem like everything is a perfectly contingent decision. And it just isn't. Most of the time you could have lined that up a bunch of different ways and they would have come to the same call. Most of the time they're just completely reactive to what's going on around them. Most, like you need soil for all this stuff to grow in, and we do such a bad job seeing what is in the soil as opposed to staring at the flowers. And so 
my book, but also in a very deep way, just my whole mode of analysis is about trying to understand the systems and ideas and ideologies and constructs that affect the decisions that we then ultimately attach to free will. Um, so, you know, I mean, you can look at a lot of the animal rights stuff that I talk about here as part of that. In a world where everybody just thought it was insane and cruel and crazy to torture animals their whole lives before you killed them for food, nobody would do it because you'd be a monster. But in a world where that is completely normalized by everyone around us, almost everyone does it because, I mean, if everybody's doing it, it can't be wrong. The idea that we're, it's like a free will choice, it is free on some level, but it is so shaped by the constructs we've grown up in in a million different ways. And you could attach this to a million different ideas and, and questions in our lives that I just think free will is – it's like it is real, but it is so much smaller a piece of the question than we like to believe it is. And by the way, that should inform your politics a lot. Um, I think people both deserve a lot less responsibility for some of the things they do wrong and a lot less of the desserts for some of the things they do right. Okay, moving on. So Max, I think this is a really interesting question. So Max wants to know, you talk a lot about political polarization on your show and you've written a book about it. It also seems like your readers and listeners are overwhelmingly liberal slash democratic, which he is assuming. Uh, with that in mind, who do you think of as the audience for your work and how do the answers to those questions structure how you see the purpose of your writing slash podcasting? So a couple things here. So it is true, I think, that the audience really leans liberal. Um, it's not as overwhelming as you might think, at least from the survey data we have, but but it's there, very much there. There's no doubt about it. I don't think of the audience in that way, though. Um, and this is something that will come up in the book. You can think about people's identities in a lot of different ways, and we're used to thinking about them most uh, centrally as people's race, gender, sexuality, religion, that kind of thing. Um, the book is much more about political identities to some degree about the way those things feed into them. But that then you get to Republican, Democrat, liberal, conservative, libertarian, democratic, socialist, etc. Um, a lot of other things are identities, uh, things that you might think of as interests or values, right? People are gamers uh, and gamer can be an interest, right? You can occasionally enjoy playing video games when you go home at night or you can be a gamer. You participate in video game forums online and, you know, you tweet about games and like you, you like wear shirts about video games and like you're displaying that identity to the world. And it can be hard to see when when a, when an interest has become an identity, but but it happens all the time. And one of the things that I believe pretty deeply is values can also become identities. Uh, you know, I'm a curious person, a fair-minded person, a generous person, or whatever. And when I try to think about the audience, I actually try to think about it in terms of values. Uh, my idea of who might enjoy the show is built on a set of values. It's people who are curious. It's people who like to understand things. It's people who find the world interesting. It's people who appreciate a certain form of political discourse versus another, right? I mean, this is in a way that often it gets criticized for not a show where I kind of pound the table and tell you why everybody else is bad, even though I obviously think a lot of people are doing things that are wrong. It's much more a show about trying to engage and be generous. And I make a big point of saying, you know, there are these arguments and they may be 80% wrong, but maybe there's 20% right in them. Or I'll do a show with Rod Dreher, who's somebody I very much believe is wrong about the world. But I want to understand his perspective on it. And so when I do the show, what I'm thinking about are people who hold those values and creating a political space for them, which is, I think, a, a space that is becoming a little smaller um, given how political media and other forms of social media are evolving. 
Uh, and that's true for me too, right? I think of myself as a person like that. I mean, in some way, the show is very structured by who I am and 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 what I think of as my own values and who I want to be in the world and what I think of as a kind of healthy political engagement. And so it reflects that for for both better and for worse. Uh, I mean, this is maybe me being so liberal, um, I can't take my own side in an argument, but I don't think the critiques of this are wrong, exactly. I don't think the critique that you can give too much credence to bad arguments is wrong. I just think that so you somehow have to balance it with, you know, you both have to understand arguments you don't agree with, and sometimes there's something valuable in arguments you don't agree with, and also it's easy to miss things that are valuable in arguments you don't agree with. And so the show in some way is for, I think, people who at some level align with the values that I think are important and that I try to cultivate in my approach to journalism more than I think the show is for someone of a very specific political category. But that said, there's no doubt that given what my politics are, the show is going to be somewhat easier to listen to for someone who agrees with those politics as opposed to finds them abhorrent and insulting. So so to follow up on that, actually, I, this is something I've been uh, curious about. You don't pound the table. You don't really play the role of contrarian. You don't really do that. But you do sometimes uh, in your questioning take on the argument that you don't necessarily believe in. Um, just, I don't know if this is, you know, you feel like this is maybe part of your role of creating a full conversation or making sure you don't leave anything out. But can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, when I'm doing the show, I try to hold three things at the same time. And this can actually be, I've, I've gotten better at it, I think, over time, but it's hard. So I'm trying to, on the one hand, have like an ongoing model of my guest. I've done a lot of research with Roger. Um, I've tried to understand what I think the guest is going to say and how they're thinking about the world. And so one one thing I'm trying to locate is where is a guest? Where are they intellectually? Where are they emotionally? What are they trying to say that maybe they're not communicating that clearly? Um, what do I know they think that I want them to say next? Um, do they seem like they're comfortable? Are they getting defensive? So I'm like in real time, trying to understand where the person either on the other side of the line or sitting in front of me is um, so that I can manage a conversation well. Then I am trying to think about how is the audience hearing this? Uh, and the audience, as I said, because I don't exactly think about it politically, I'm the first thing I think about it as is like, is what we're saying clear? So I'm constantly either like asking myself, is what the guest just said not did that not come out right? Did I not ask a question or did I ask a question that jumped us forward in the argument? Such an important connective tissue that I know and the guest knows, but the audience doesn't know is gone and now people are going to get lost. So like again, and this is another sort of in real time thing, I'm trying to make sure that the structure of every argument is really clear. And you'll often hear me if you pay attention to it, and, and I know you, Jeff, hear this a lot. <laughs> what I'm often doing in questions is almost restating what somebody said to put in information that I think they might have missed or put out uh, unclearly. Um, but the other thing there when thinking about the audience is thinking about what the audience's counter arguments or questions would be. So there's a certain set of questions that are going to occur to me very naturally. Uh, they're the questions I will have about something. But those questions are informed by my own model of the world and what I think of as kind of correct and true. And so I also try to think about, you know, what would somebody who's coming at this from a slightly different perspective than me or even a very different perspective of me want to hear? Like, what is the obvious counter argument that if I don't address it, they're going to feel unrepresented in the uh, show? And oftentimes I don't address it or can't or I obviously don't get to everything. But I try to at least keep some tracking in my own head of, you know, if somebody were listening to this from a center-right perspective, like what what if we don't talk about it, even if it is not my view 
are they going to it will not allow them to listen to the guest because their obvious counter argument has never been addressed and until that is addressed they can't hear or absorb or engage with what has been said um you know, and I try to do that for not, again, the entire range of perspectives one might have, but a, a reasonable range of perspectives. And I'll just say the third thing that is not something I understood as part of the role uh, when I started the podcast, but it's something I take more seriously now is when you're doing all that, it actually can be hard for me to realize what I actually want to know, like where I live in the conversation. And if I totally lose track of myself, then having a like an honest a uh, spontaneous conversation can begin to weaken, and I'm sort of operating in this slightly automatic way between the questions I have, or at least like the sort of topics for questioning I have, and where I think the audience is, and where the guest is. And so it's actually hard to just both intellectually and emotionally track um, where I am and how I'm responding to things when I'm trying to do all that. So, so the work is balancing those things. But to the very specific question um, you asked there, what I'm trying to do most often there is either clarify something or allow an objection to be aired, both to see how the guest will respond, but also to make sure that people who have that objection feel that they um, exist in the show as well uh, and that they are being addressed enough that they can keep listening without feeling like there's nothing for me to listen to here because nothing that I actually want to know or none of the obvious responses I actually have are going to be aired. So we're going to get back to politics in a second, but I actually have a follow-up question on that from Tim, um, because I think this might speak to actually um, another element that you're considering when you're doing an interview. So Tim wants to know, uh, a behind-the-scenes question, when you do your podcast, how often are you in the same room as your interviewee, and does the conversation have a different feel or tenor when you are or aren't? I'd say we're in the same room maybe 20% of the time, uh, and it does have a different tenor. It's much more of a conversation when we're in the same room. It tends to go to Jeff's regret longer when we're in the same room. Um, it is a lot easier for me to focus when we're in the same room. Um, I find it harder to pay attention over long periods of time when I'm remote. There's just less information coming in, uh, and it's easier to get distracted. So I wish I, I like being in the same room, and I wish I was in the same room as people more, but I tend to prize what it is we want to explore or the guests we want to get higher than being in the same room. So it doesn't happen um, as often as I'd like it to. Next question is from Sophia. So we all know that the election will come down to a collection of swing states who don't represent the whole country. How do we justify not running a candidate who most appeals to those folks? So with we there being Democrats, I'm not sure Democrats can justify not running a, a candidate who most appeals to those uh, folks. Um, there's something Matt Iglesias calls the pundits fallacy, which is um, – I'll get it wrong a little bit from memory, but it's something like I believe this would be good and thus this would also be good politics. You will relatively rarely hear people say, I believe this would be good, but I think it's bad politics, so you shouldn't do it, or it's bad politics, but you should do it anyway. People tend to think that whatever they think is going to be good is also going to be the best politics. And as such, in general, everybody believes the thing they already want to do is the best way to appeal to swing state voters. So I don't know like any supporters of Bernie Sanders who say – I think we should nominate Bernie Sanders because the most important thing is to maximize the chance of a democratic socialist revolution in this country. But if we wanted to maximize the chance of winning the election, we would nominate Amy Klobuchar because she overperforms hugely in Minnesota and Minnesota is a lot politically like Wisconsin. And as such, like it's clear, like, like Amy Klobuchar has the best record of appealing to the kind of voters the Democrats really need to win. Um, and conversely, I don't know like any Joe Biden supporters who say, well, look. 
I think Joe Biden has the experience for the job and he knows all the world leaders and he's going to be great. But I think that a like populist, you know, incorruptible, uh, more radical approach to politics is actually going to be better for mobilizing young voters and other more marginalized Democratic constituencies. And so we should elect, uh, you know, Democrats should nominate Elizabeth Warren, even though I would prefer Joe Biden. Or we should still do Joe Biden, but it would be better to do, you know, Warren. And it's just worth it to have somebody who is experienced at responding to foreign crises. So. Democrats really should, I think, given the importance of elections, uh, nominate the person who will uh, appeal to swing states. But in general, they all think they're doing that because motivated reasoning is very powerful. Um, the other thing I would note is that I think it's actually pretty reasonable as a view that the marginal differences between the Democratic candidates, given the power of polarization, how much Donald Trump is himself a mobilizing figure, are actually small enough and uncertain enough that you can't really make that call, that it's just too hard to know which Democrat over time would be the most appealing in Wisconsin. I'm not sure I agree with this, but I think you can make the argument. And as such, if you think they would all be almost equally good, which is, I think, another version of that, um, that basically they're all going to perform the same because that's how politics now more or less works, um, you know, within a two or three point margin. That what you should do is you should nominate the one who you think is going to make it likeliest that Democrats win Senate races in Arizona and North Carolina and Iowa and Alabama. And so because it matters if you want to ask what is going to allow a Democrat to get more done, it's not is it Bernie Sanders or Joe Biden in the chair? It's is Mitch McConnell Senate majority leader or not? And so one question there, you might think, for instance, that Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders have exactly equal chances uh, of winning the election. But nevertheless, you might think, say, Joe Biden makes it more likely Democrats are going to win in Arizona, which is a state that I don't think there's good reason to think is ready for a socialist revolution. And so that would be, I think, one other way of cutting that question that you want to really ask, what do the people who are running for um, office in Arizona and who have won office in places like Arizona, Democrats, in places like Arizona and Iowa and um, and Florida and so on want and or, you know, what do they think would be best for them? Uh, but again, I don't really hear people saying that either. Uh, they tend to just assume that whoever they like most is going to be the best down ticket and so on and so forth. So Jan wants to know, uh, there have been many interviews where the negative sides of capitalism have been highlighted. I'm curious to know what your Ezra's opinion on it is in the way it is shaping our lives right now. So something that I am trying to do in these interviews is cut two things apart from each other. I think capitalism defined broadly as using well-constructed markets to achieve certain economic outcomes is, a, you know, not a perfect system of economic organization, but is more or less the best one we have for a lot of different things. You know, and then you would want the government to deal with not just market failures, but public goods and things where there are non-market um, incentives, which are pretty, that's a pretty big swath of the uh, of, of what we need to do too. But I'm pro-capitalism. I think markets are great um, when, again, they're well-structured. The thing that I am interested in and where I have become much more sympathetic to the critique of capitalism is that what should have been a means has become an end. What should have been a mechanism has become itself an ideology. There are a lot of different definitions of neoliberalism running around, but the one I find most helpful is one that came from Wendy Brown, which is it's a form of reasoning. It's a form of public reason. It's a way of thinking about human beings and relationship to each other and the world, which is to say – 
when capitalism ceases to be a tool that we employ in specific circumstances to achieve outcomes that are well-defined and instead becomes the way we think about how to judge outcomes themselves, who is or is not worthy, who should or should not get status in society, how – what should education, you know, to a first approximation before that kind of thing, then I think capitalism has slipped its leash and we're in a little bit more trouble. And I think that's more or less where we are. I think that it is – we're in a kind of period where a lot of the things, the sort of alternative or competitive forms of public reason that we used to have, both some of them ideological, you know, there was – at least for – we may be moving back into a more ideological moment or maybe we already have. But for much of the 20th century, there was much more of an ideological competition. You had socialists and communists and fascists and you know all, all kinds of different things running around. Um, and you also had a lot more religion. And so you had these things that were operating um, at the same time as capitalism that acted – as countervailing conceptual powers, let's call it. So, you know, yes, on the one hand, the economy is structured in a capitalist way, but you lived in, you know, uh, Columbus, Ohio, and you were part of a church, and you know, you're a Catholic, and and so on and so forth. And these things kind of restrained each other. Um, now, a lot of those other things, or at least had for some time, weakened. We are a lot less religious um, as a country than we were at that time. We have at least been in a period where there's been less intellectual um, and ideological contesting of the boundaries of how to structure life. The the questions politics is trying to answer are a lot smaller um, oftentimes than they were in the mid-20th century um, when there was much more utopian thinking, when there was much more radical thinking, when there was much more thinking about you know what would a great society look like as opposed to just how could we improve this one a little bit. Even if that latter approach is more realistic to how things actually work, it does have its costs and its drawbacks. And so my kind of approach to looking at capitalism is what has happened now that these other things have fled the scene or have weakened on the scene? And we have allowed capitalism to become a philosophy by which we look at all kinds of different parts of life. And so, yeah, my approach, my thinking on capitalism as an economic system is relatively positive. My thinking on capitalism as a way we organize our thinking about government economics and our relationships to each other is relatively negative. And I worry that we have transitioned in ways that are often unexamined from one to the other. Okay, so this is a bit of a longer question, um, but JJ wants to know, I'm curious of your take on the left liberal divide. How do you feel about the distinctions drawn, particularly by Bernie Sanders supporters and the Democratic Socialists of America, DSA? Do you find any of the arguments about fealty and or soft corruption of the Democratic Party convincing? One more recent example might be uh, Mayor Pete. He is continuing closed door fundraisers, even as he claims to want campaign finance re reform. Is it fair to criticize those decisions and question his allegiances? I think there are a lot of arguments that are happening between the DSA wing of the Democrats and the sort of mainstream wing of the Democrats that are not that useful and that don't always reflect true things about the candidates. And the Pete Buttigieg, like, can you be for campaign finance reform and also do fundraisers? Of course you can. What level of intense belief does Pete Buttigieg have in campaign finance reform and is that signaled by his approach to fundraisers? I think that's a more fair question. So, you know, the fact that people use the tools available to them in an effort to win, given how the game is structured and whether or not they want to change that game once they win, those are – you can have people who play, you know, one side of that and then come out on the other side of it and it's just always hard to know which you're looking at. But the thing that I think is – a pretty big difference between the two sides is 
actually an underlying approach to political theory and disagreement more than anything else. I've done a lot of conversations over the past year with people who are quite a bit to my left. And one of the things I'm often trying to understand with them is because I get a lot of criticism from people like that or have more traditionally um, is where do we disagree? Like what, what are we actually different on? And something that comes up a lot in my view is that we have different underlying theories, not so much about what would a good world look like, but what are the impediments to getting to that world? One version of that disagreement, which I often sort of argue explicitly, has to do with political institutions and the constraints they they cause. So if to get anything done, you have to win over Joe Manchin, that's going to have and require a different strategy than if the um, hinge vote is Cory Booker, uh, for instance. Um, but then another one is I think that there is much more – if you like look at a Bernie Sanders and a Pete Buttigieg – and you really like dig into what they think about the electorate. Bernie Sanders will say, and he has said many times, that he thinks the electorate basically agrees with him. And that uh, he said once that, you know, if there wasn't something like Fox News and like the billionaires and millionaires pulling the strings with all their money, that only like 10 to 15 percent of the electorate would like give the Republican Party time of day. Whereas if you listen to Joe Biden or Pete Buttigieg, they take the conservative side of the electorate and conservatism within the electorate as much more of a binding constraint, something they're not going to be able to change. Um, they take the disagreement that exists there as more real and such something that you're going to have to negotiate with, compromise with, calm down, work not to exacerbate. So there's a version of the left which I think either believes that the disagreement isn't that real, um, and I think that's often argued pretty explicitly, or even if it is that real, you can just mobilize everyone who's on your side and crush it. And then there's a version of the sort of main, more mainstream Democrats, which I think is informed by, uh, for a lot of them, a lot of watching things fail in politics, um, you know, and, and learning lessons from that that may or may not be right, that you have to work with the system in a more pluralistic way, that you have to accept that industry has power, that billionaires have power, that conservatives have power, Republicans have power. And you're going to somehow need to put a coalition together that can overcome all of that plus the very, very difficult institutional path anything big has has to traverse if it's going to get done in this country. And so they end up with a politics that can be more moderate. Um, a version of this that has been playing out on Twitter just in the past couple of days is there's been one of these fights about uh, somebody or other was tweeting that, you know, if you don't support Medicare for all, you literally want to kill thousands of Americans. Um, because if you don't have truly universal health care, people are going to die from a lack of private health insurance. And I'm somebody who has made the argument many times and I stand by the argument that health insurance is a life or death question and that if you um, oppose uh, efforts at expansion, you really are saying at some level that it would be worth having these people die rather than expanding health care and that you better be able to make a damn fucking good argument for why. And usually people are not. Um but a place where I part with a lot of these folks is that they think that – I think implicitly at the very least they argue that you have to support the most maximalist option or you're heartless and cruel because the most maximalist option will do the most good. But for instance, if you believe – and I think there's good reason to at least worry about this – that supporting full-on Medicare for all with much higher taxes and abolition of private health insurance is more likely to lead to nothing happening at all – total failure in the system than supporting, say, an enhanced public option and Medicare down to 50 and so on, a more, let's say, a more modest agenda. If that more modest agenda has a 60 percent chance of passage, 
Um, and Medicare for all has like a zero percent chance of passage. You know, I'm not saying that's true, but let's take it for sake of argument. The reason people will support compromise agendas is not because they don't care. It is precisely because they do care and they know that you need to get something done and they know that failure is a possibility and they believe that the path to getting something done is more narrow and that the interest groups you're going to have to deal with have more power than people on the left believe. And so I think the the great collision of this era is the left is making an argument. And again, I think you've heard it quite explicitly in some of the people I've had on the show and they're saying that the mainstream kind of Democratic Party is wrong about what the constraints are. The public is more so more democratic socialist than they allow it to admit. And that a lot of these boundaries are actually just elites either inventing them or themselves enforcing them. And then a lot of the sort of more, you know, let's call it more mainstream liberals argue, no, um, we've seen this play out again and again and again. The way the American political system works, there are a lot of people who don't agree with you. The Democratic Party is very badly geographically disadvantaged in the Senate, in the Electoral College, um, to some degree in the House. To get anything like conservatism is a real phenomenon and so is a power interest groups have and as much as you might wish they didn't, they do. And so you're going to have to put together coalitions and if you're really, really lucky and things go really well, you're going to get a half loaf. And like that is how American politics has always been. It is just how it is and it is – like if you want to help people, then you have to do the thing that is emotionally less satisfying but is more likely to actually help them. Um, I'm not in this answer going to try to like decide who is right. And to some degree, I think both sides have a point, um, which is to say that I think the left is probably right that more has changed in the underlying structure of politics um, over the past 10 years than a lot of people of overly long experience in the Democratic Party are willing to admit or are ready to admit. I think there's possibly like a larger window uh, – in which things can get done. On the other hand, I think the more mainstream Democrats are right to say that that window is still not that large. It is likely the next Democratic president, um, even if Democrats win, it would be like an exceptionally good outcome for them to have 52 Senate votes. Obama had for a period of time 60 and for longer 59 and then after that a Republican Senate. So you are probably going to get a lot less done than Obama got done um, no matter who you put in. And I think that's something that people have not really faced up to, uh, but is sort of animating at least part of this fight. But you know, then there are all kinds of like secondary political considerations of if you ask for the most you can possibly get, are you more likely to get a good compromise? Or if you ask for the most you can possibly um, ask for, are you more likely to just get shot down from the beginning and you fail outright? I think a lot of people on the left think that if you start with something that is uncompromising, you're likely to end with a good compromise. And then a lot of people um, uh, who are more center left think that if you start with something that ha that is DOA in the Senate, you're likely to get nothing at all. And I think that's also a good argument. But so I think these arguments are important, but I think they're often cast as ideological arguments when they're often arguments about the underlying structure of politics and political opinion. So uh, following up on that kind of a related question, Philip wants to know, why does the left demonize technocrats? Uh, Philip considers himself both a liberal and a technocrat and doesn't get the criticism from the left that technocrats are equivalent to centrists. Yeah. So as a technocrat who is sometimes demonized from the left as equivalent <laughs> to a centrist, um, although I think that has calmed down in the last year or two, uh, I get where it's coming from. But I think I think it's not real, uh, which is to say something that I'm re reasonably happy about is that the left is quite technocratic. I mean, if you look at a guy like uh, – you know, a Matt Brunig or you read Jacobin or something, there's a it's very informed by policy analysis. It's very informed 
by the lessons of sort of DC think tank world, all of that. Um, and compared to, say, what somebody like me was critiquing when I started Wonkblog, which was an unending focus on horse race politics and a kind of approach to politics as if it is simply a game and policy doesn't matter. And it's just like it's interesting to see who wins and loses. I think the like the critique people like me were making has more or less been adopted, um, not by everybody, but enough. And as such, people can then sort of move on beyond that critique and say, yeah, but even so, when you do frame things so technocratically, you're losing a lot of the values and underlying ideological questions that animate them. And so I would say that when the left is making that critique of technocrats, I think it is often unfair, and certainly I think it has been unfair applied to me, but to be more generous to it, um, what I think they're often arguing is that in framing politics and policy questions as sort of questions of policy math, like you can always just like find a clever way to tweak your way through the problem and maybe calm all the opposition and blah, 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 and you end up on the other side with something complicated, but maybe it can pass, that they're one, missing a lot of questions of power, and two, accepting too many boundaries within the political conversation is a given. I mean, something that people who are doing technocratic policy work are often doing is saying, given the way we think the interests and votes and so on are lined up, like, what is the best way to design something so it might be able to pass? And I think that the critique that a lot of people on the left are making in also a very technocratic way <laughs> is stop taking all that for granted. Um, and that's where I think the sort of technocrats equal centrist thing is coming in, that what a lot of people on the left want folks to do is not take some of the boundaries so for granted, both ideological and political. Um, and then what a lot of the kind of more technocratic people who, at least more traditionally from think tanks and so on, don't do well enough is argue for why their assumptions are actually reasonable. And so a lot of this ends up being debates people of a somewhat policy bent are having with each other. Uh, not actually some kind of totally different uh, like conversation where like one side has a bunch of credential technocrats and the other doesn't. But you know, people adopt the language and rhetorical framing that they think makes sense. I mean, you can read like old Baskar Sankara attacks on me that are all about what a horrifying technocrat I am. And also you can go listen to the conversation we did. <laughs> and and he and I have had uh, you know other conversations since. And I get what he's doing in all that, but I think it's much more of a political position or was more of a political positioning device than an actual issue about, you know, was I actually operating without values? And is he somehow operating in a world where technocratic analysis doesn't matter? Because he publishes a lot of technocratic analysis, and I wouldn't do this if I didn't care about people getting health insurance. And so, um, you know, sometimes there's a kind of positioning politics working that actually obscures what people are, are in truth discussing. Okay, so Althea wants to know, I hope I pronounced that right. Um, I was wondering if you have any past experience working on or volunteering for a political campaign, and if so, how that experience influences how you think about politics today. I do. Um, I didn't think I'd ever become a journalist. That was not a, a, an aim or aspiration of mine. What I thought I'd do was work in politics for campaigns and politicians and, you know, like actually try to kind of work in the system. And then I uh, went and I interned on the Howard Dean campaign for a summer uh, in 2004. And what I learned doing that was that I hated working on campaigns. I mean, I'd done volunteering on campaigns before that when I was younger, but that was the first time like I actually got a sense of what it would be like working, like actually working on a campaign. And the reason I didn't like it was that I don't like having to believe in a politician and nothing against Howard Dean, who I have a lot of admiration for, um, but... 
I just, it's just not the way my mind works to, I don't want to have be in a position of having to say that everything somebody says or does is the right thing to say or do. Um, I like being able to explore questions on my own and come to the answer I think is true and then, you know, make an argument for that answer. And so the thing that working on campaigns taught me is that I am not cut out to be a, a campaign or a staffer, <laughs> that it just, it would not fit me well in the long run and I would be bad at it. That's interesting. So were you there for the Dean Scream? Uh, no, I left a, I left some months before the Dean Scream. But it's really what led me into political journalism. Um, it was during that period where it became – I was still – I was blogging at that time. And it was during that period on the campaign where I was like, here I was. I'd like gotten the thing I had so much wanted that I had hoped would be my future. And I was hating working on the campaign and I loved blogging. And that was the first time where I began to realize, oh, this thing that I'm doing isn't a hobby. It's the thing itself. It's fascinating. Okay, so Andrea wants to know, um, speaking about yourself, what have you learned about yourself since becoming a dad that has surprised you the most? That I really like the work of parenting. Um, this I, I, I really um, had a lot of anxiety about and did not expect. So before I was a dad, I didn't find kids very interesting. And it was unclear to me what would make them interesting. Um, their jokes are bad for the most part. <laughs> their art is bad. You know, like you'd go to somebody's house and you'd see like a piece of construction paper with scribbles on it. And would be like, ah, oh, so-and-so made this and it's a picture of a car. And, it, and you'd be like, no, it isn't, <laughs> number one. <laughs> um, and I just didn't I, – I, I, just, I just worried that I just wouldn't find being a parent interesting. I mean I live a very cerebral life. I like like talking to people about politics and you know philosophy and healthcare and and so the work of being a parent just seemed incredibly different from that and in fact being a parent has taught me that I don't like politics that much <laughs> <laughs> and would in many ways like to do less of it and I, I can't explain like what combination of chemicals and hormones and whatever it is that makes your kids so interesting to you I'll, I'll give a very concrete example of this. I can't count how many times I've met friends' kids or family members' kids who are young, you know, like 10 months a year. And my 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 friend would be as you know over there and be like, okay, say bye-bye to Ezra. Bye-bye. Say bye-bye. Say bye-bye to <laughs> bye-bye. Come on, you can do a bye-bye. And we'd be sitting there for like six minutes. And then eventually, you know, this 10-month-old would like put up a hand and like like open and close it four times, be like, yay. And I'd be sitting there like, this is the most boring thing that has ever happened to me. And I am now that person. Yeah. And every time my son does a bye-bye, I'm like, that's amazing. You don't even, <laughs> like, he couldn't lift his head six months ago. So there's some way in which you get invested into the story of your own kid that's really beautiful and it's fun. And I, I like, I did not expect to like the work of it. I didn't expect to find it so fulfilling, um, but I do. And um, certainly my time with my son is like the tends to be some of the best time I spend during the day. That's not to say there aren't a lot of hard parts about parenting. But one thing that I, I believe deeply now that I've become a parent is that the things that are hard about parenting are very apparent from the outside, that you can imagine them and feel them. So it's like being tired feels like you would expect it does if you're not a parent. It feels like being tired. And wanting to do something else when you're with your kid, which does happen all the time, feels like you would expect it does. And being annoyed that your kid is screaming on an airplane um, or, you know, just 
needs your attention all the time. Like, yeah, like you can get it, right? The way you are imagining yourself into that is probably not wrong. The thing that is very hard to imagine is how the other parts of it will feel. Um, that is the stuff. There's actually a book of philosophy called Transformational Experiences, all about how there are these things that you just you can't understand from the other side of the veil. Um, there's no way to talk about them. There's no way to make an argument about them. You actually just like it's not going to feel. They use the example. Um, they do use the example of parenting, but the big metaphorical example is if somebody came to you and they're like, "I am a vampire," and I really think you would like being a vampire. And so what you should do is let me bite you and make you a vampire. And then uh, you'll be like, it's going to be way better. And like for all these reasons, you just couldn't know, right? They could be lying. They could experience being a vampire differently, you know, whatever it is. Um, and so at some point, the only way to know what it's like to be a vampire is to be a vampire. And parenting is, for me, at least a little bit like that. The experience of it is just exceptionally different than the way I could look at it and reason my way through it, right? The way I could kind of project myself into that situation is not how it feels. Um, and so that's been both like a great relief and a really beautiful thing for me that I really like the time um, I spend parenting for the most part. Again, not all of that. I don't want to like pretend that I'd never look at my phone or something. Um, but, you know, my my kid is really fun uh, and it's a much purer and more grounding and more present focused experience than I get elsewhere in my life. And so that was a part of me that I just didn't really know was there. Uh, and it's very different than the part of me that I mostly have inhabited or where I built my self-image around, um, which is, you know, I like to read a lot and, you know, um, I do a podcast like this. So uh, so that's been great. Um, and that, yeah, that to me has been a, been a surprise just because I just didn't see any antecedent for it in who I was or what I had liked beforehand. Would you say it hardened some of your political thinking on, you know, climate change, education, et cetera? I think I've said this on the podcast before. It's very much hardened um, my political thinking around inequality. Uh, I can just see how much I'm able to do for my kid, how much I would do for him, how much time I'm able to give him because I have a flexible schedule, um, because my wife and I are both there. Um, you know, we're able to pay for childcare, right? There are a lot of things about having a kid that are both easier and a lot of things about my life where I'm able to um, invest in him. And putting aside everything else that like what you you know, like post-market inequality, right? Everything else that creates inequality, it almost pales in comparison to this equality inequality of where people are born into and what family they're born into, that he is born into not just a family in America, but a you know, a family that is reasonably well off in America. And a you know, like end a family where there's like flexible schedules and, you know, mentally stable parents and the whole thing. You you can't look at that and not realize how unbelievably unfair life outcomes are, and so you know I'm I am a I have an egalitarian streak well predating my kid, but it has really really hardened that. Okay, so Mark wants to know. Uh, I'd like to understand more about why you give. Uh, speaking about charity, how does it make you feel? How does it, uh, how do you decide how much to allocate to your various interests in percentages or in dollars? And how much should I give? Well, I can't tell Mark how much he should give. Um, <laughs> but I, I do think uh, one reason I'm going to answer this question came, comes from the Peter Singer episode mm -hmm. where he was talking about the importance of actually being open to this. Um, I give or my family gives 10% um, of all pre-tax earnings. And like as a as a bottom, right? That is like the floor of what we give. And 
you know, why why is that picked? I've seen arguments for it in different places. There's a giving pledge. It is, I think, something like that. Uh, there's tithing, which is an old religious tradition, although it's a little bit different in the way it works. But and then also, and it's important to say this, I can give that much, right? That has to do with, you know, uh, my own economic situation. Uh, but I think that, like, why I do it, I mean, functionally and philosophically, I think I should probably give more than that. But at the very least, I can do that. Um, I can do that without, you know, it's a it's a genuine hit to our incomes. Yeah, it's 10% pre-tax. But, like, I can do it without changing, you know, without falling beneath any kind of standard of living that I, I I live great, right? I live much better off than I probably deserve. And so like that is an amount that both makes me feel that we are making a significant contribution. Um, I've seen arguments about how sort of if basically everybody gave something like 10%, we could solve a whole lot of global problems. And so I feel like I'm giving in a way that if it were more of a, if that were the sort of norm, it would work um, for creating a much, much better world. And I feel like it is, I don't know, somehow connected to parts of religious traditions that I think are beautiful. And so there's something in that continuity that feels correct to me, even as I'm a pretty secular person. Yeah, you know, that, that was one of my biggest takeaways from the Peter Singer episode is how we're so secretive with our giving and how much we give. And I feel like it's, um, obviously you said it's rooted in kind of religion and, and tzedakah, and, but I really do feel like that's... Um, that's a powerful thing to to speak to it and be specific. So to give other people um, motivation to do the same. Um, so Thomas wants to know, what does NBER mean to you, uh, National Bureau of Economic Research? You don't see other news sites using NBER as a jumping off point. Why do you think Vox is the only one that does this? So this is a little bit more, I think, of a weeds question, but I did want to answer it. Um, so NBER, for those who don't know, is National Bureau of Economic Research. And this actually stretches back to our wonk blog days um, or some of our wonk blog days where I think it was Dylan Matthews who had a tag on the site called Live Every Day Like It's NBER Day. <laughs> NBER Day is Mondays, as I remember. And on Mondays, NBR, which is a very, very strong economics research, among other things, aggregator and organization, puts out all their new working papers. And to be totally honest, the reason, I mean, is a little of a bit of a joke, live every day like it's NBR day. But the point is that on that day, a lot of really interesting new research would drop in a predictable place in a predictable way. And we could go through that and look for cool story ideas, look for papers that we should summarize or explore or researchers we should talk to to learn more, you know, about the world. And the reason I want to answer this question is that it, we use NBR heavily, although not exclusively by any means. But one reason we use it heavily is it's really convenient. And an advantage economics discipline has over a lot of other disciplines is that it has a central aggregator like this. Now, again, not every economics paper makes it into NBR, is accepted by NBR. Um, the, that's not the point. The point is not in any way that NBR is perfect or it is some organization that I feel a deep ideological affinity for. It is it, it provides a very valuable service. And I wish to the core of my being that political scientists would figure out something like this. The closest thing we have is political scientist Matt Grossman's Twitter feed, where he has just become obsessively interested in retweeting new political science papers and relevant political science papers. So if you don't follow him on Twitter, you should. It's one of the few good things about Twitter, the work he's doing there. Um, but nevertheless, I really wish there were more of these. I wish there were more groups that were aggregating great research in different disciplines so it's much easier to follow what was happening in the discipline. Um, so Live Every Day Like It's NBR Day is not a statement about NBER. 
It is a tongue-in-cheek joke that is reflecting that NBR is providing a valuable service to journals who want to follow um, good economics research. And I really wish that it would make no sense to make a joke out of it because everybody was doing it and NBR was simply one of many, many, many competitors in that way. But as far as I know, at least, and I have looked, it is not. Um, also, NBR makes it very easy for journals to access that work. Uh, and a lot of journals, which do come out at least relatively on a normal time frame, although not anything like as, as much as NBR does, make it very hard for journals to access their work. So NBR is great because it provides a great service and we you know, use that in part because it's convenient and in part because um, it's a it's a good thing for our reporting. But uh, it would be great if other people looked at this and looked at all the promotion we do of NBR for that reason and decided to create uh, competitor services, both maybe within economics. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of things that don't get picked up by NBR, both for good and bad reasons. But even more to the point outside economics, I would love to see this for for a lot of other academic approaches. Support for this podcast comes from another podcast. The world's most valuable resource isn't water or gold or even oil. It's data. Our data, based on our behaviors, is frequently being gathered, tracked, stored, and sold. These transactions are mostly invisible to us and worth billions. What does that mean for us? What does it mean for society? Join host Rafi Krikorian, Chief Technology Officer at Emerson Collective, for season two of Technically Optimistic, where he'll take you on a deep dive into how our data is being used and what we can do about it. How do we advocate for ourselves and our privacy so that we can have control over our information and a say in how technology evolves? From surveillance to social media, reproductive rights to criminal justice reform. Krikorian leads us into territories both familiar and unexpected with openness and genuine curiosity, encouraging us to remain technically optimistic in the face of big data. New episodes of Technically Optimistic drop every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so Adam wants to know, you used to ask guests, what is the one thing you believe is true that other people believe is false or some variant of that? Um, why did you stop asking this question? And then our researcher, Roger, wants to also know what is one thing that you believe is true that other believe is false? <laughs> Thanks, Roger. <laughs> um, so <laughs> I stopped asking that question actually as a broader change in the way I did the show. So when I started the show, there were certain shows I listened to that had a kind of like a lightning round at the end where they would have relatively standard questions they ask people. As I developed more of my own style and relied less on a kind of influence of their styles, I realized that what I liked having was a much more structured conversation about an idea or a topic. And so then having a lightning round with sort of random questions like that didn't quite – it didn't feel right. It didn't feel the way it feels if I'm having somebody on and the idea of that person is like, that person is great. You should know how they do their work or live their life or like how they got to where they are today. And now I'm just going to ask them some random questions because everything they say is interesting. Not to take anything away from that work. I actually really like podcasts like that. But um, but it wasn't what I was doing. And so, you know, if I bring someone on and I like want to have, you know, like a two-hour conversation about geoengineering – and then at the end to ask a bunch of random questions like that, it just – it seems off somehow, you know, it, like something that other people don't believe is true about geoengineering or – so I just stopped it uh, because it, it just – my style evolved beyond it. Um, in terms of something I believe like that, I mean I think the most obvious one that obviously comes up on the 
show all the time is around animal suffering um, and like what a like unbelievable atrocity of our age that is. But because I think listeners will know that I'm not going to use that one. I think the big one for me is actually something we talked about earlier, which is persuasion. I just don't believe persuasion works the way we think it does. I think that people are not rational in that way. I think that most, you know, I, I sort of agree with John Haidt, who says that particularly when politics is involved, our minds are working somewhat more like press secretaries than like, you know, disinterested truth seekers. And so the question of what is possible in terms of persuasion is just much more limited than people think it is. And I think that is something that most people in politics simply think is false. Politics is – so much that happens in politics is built around the idea that persuasion is possible. And even if you like really push people, they'll know that like, yeah, in general, they seem to never really persuade anybody of anything. Um, but you got to try or you know, I'm sure it'll work the next time or it's just because we're not radical enough or if people were just like truly socialist or libertarian or you – know, you'll get answers. But – I think that persuasion is really difficult. And so um, I think that a lot of what is happening in politics is simply wasted. That most things that happen in politics to a first approximation don't matter. And they will not matter in a couple of months in terms of public opinion. And you can really see this with Donald Trump, by the way. What people think of Donald Trump has been incredibly stable from day one of his presidency. And despite the incredible volatility of the news cycle and, you know, one week something crazy is happening and the next week the next crazy thing is happening, opinions of him have been in a very, very narrow band from the moment he was inaugurated. And so it's been a real lesson in – it's not that these things don't matter at all. They might be helping to hold opinions of him stable in that way despite a reasonably good economy. But it is to say that – I think if you had asked people for their belief in the volatility of public opinion and you had sort of described some of the things that would happen in the Trump presidency and said, like, what do you think will happen to public opinion after that? They would have told you it would move a lot as opposed to it wouldn't move at all. <laughs> but the answer tends to be it doesn't move at all or even if it does move by a couple points, it settles back down um, two weeks later. And so the – like – I don't want to call it non-malleability because it is somewhat malleable, but the relative stability of both people's opinions and public opinion more broadly is something that I believe is true, that a huge amount of professional politics is organized around the belief that it is false. Caitlin is dying to know, are you a red wine person or a white wine person? I do not really like wine. I think it is mostly a scam. I'm not um, surprised by that. We have done good videos <laughs> at Vox about how uh, if you blind taste test people, they will not be able to tell the difference between expensive and inexpensive wines. Um, so do not drink wine, drink whiskey. And in general, substitute alcohol for pot. I love it. And what's your uh, whiskey of choice? Ooh, uh, I tend to just drink bullet. Good choice. Okay. Curtis wants to know if we will ever see a constitutional amendment in our lifetime. I think this is a pretty interesting question in the sense that we used to have a lot of constitutional amendments. I don't have the number uh, at my fingertips here, but, you know, I mean, look at the Constitution. For a long time, we were passing constitutional amendments. I believe it's something like every 20 years. And then we've not had one for a minute, and we don't look like we're going to have one anytime soon. There is an interesting thing, by the way, uh, about – I think it's Virginia could pass the Equal Rights Amendment, and then the number of states that did – pass it would actually send it up for ratification or something. And there's a question of like, are those past passages from decades ago still valid? But there is a fascinating thing where, and it might be a, a side effect of polarization or maybe that we've come to venerate the Constitution in a weird, 
deeper way as we get further and further from its construction. But earlier generations are much more willing to add and change the Constitution than we are. And so I think it is very likely that I don't know that we won't see one in our lifetimes because I don't want to predict what politics is going to be like 40 years from now. Um, But nevertheless, we are seeing a real slowdown in constitutional amendments. And what's funny is that we're seeing that as the Constitution in many ways – not in many ways, as the Constitution literally becomes further and further from the situation it was meant to respond to, and as Americans' view of how they're being governed becomes more dim, right? People do not like how they're being governed. Congress has a very low approval rating. The president has a low approval rating. Our structures have low approval ratings. Like, clearly something is going wrong. But that said, given that what is going wrong, um, and again, there's a lot about this in my book, um, given that what is going wrong is a level of polarization and disagreement the system has no actual way to resolve. That is also the kind of thing that makes it impossible to add amendments to the Constitution where you need a real supermajority to do that. And so to the the extent that one of the things that is implicated in our current problems is our constitutional structure, our constitutional structure is set in stone by our current problems, which makes any kind of effective response very, very difficult to contemplate. And for those taking notes, the 27th Amendment was ratified in 1992. There you go. There you go. All right. Ross wants to know what happens if Trump refuses to leave office, denies the validity of the election results, or in some way disregards all the norms around a peaceful transfer of power? You know, I get this question a lot. I got a lot of people writing this in and asking this question. I have a couple thoughts on it. One is – I hope he doesn't do that, but it's not impossible. I think it is much more likely not that he would refuse to leave office, but that he would leave office, but he would repeatedly tweet about how it was rigged, right? So that what he would do is not actually barricade himself in the White House, but he would like tweet about how he, you know, he was witch hunted out and, you know, worst thing that's ever happened to a person and he'd send the next president an eight-page letter of angry lines. And, you know, he he doesn't – in general, when Trump gets negative political news – He tends to abide by it. Um, He has not defied Supreme Court results, for instance, uh, even though some people thought maybe he would. Uh, I'm sure that if he had lost in 2016, he would have said it was rigged, but I don't think he would have tried to lead an armed force to take over the White House. And that's actually the next point I was going to make, which is the place you would really worry about that is if you had a demagogic president who had really turned the armed forces over to his side. But Donald Trump does not actually have a very good relationship with the military, the intelligence services, et cetera. He does with um, police, with border security guards. So it isn't that there's nobody who carries a gun that is pro-Donald Trump. Many people who carry guns are pro-Donald Trump in a way that is concerning. Um, but I don't think he's in a place where he somehow has so has such overwhelming support from the uh, armed factions of or armed um, parts of the U.S. government that he would be able to execute something like that kind of implicit coup. So I don't think it's unlikely that he loses and tries to whip people up around his loss and tries to make people feel the next president is illegitimate, and that would be very bad for democracy. But the idea that he will not leave, I think, is unlikely. Um, I think that he – not even sure he really likes this job. I think he likes winning and does not like losing. But you know, many times he seems most comfortable in the – when playing the role of critic – when playing the role of somebody who tweets about how things are going badly and how he's being mistreated, much more so than he likes doing complicated strategic and tactical planning to get anything done. And so I I seem to be less worried about this than many other people. 
I will say he has, what, three Supreme Court cases coming up regarding his tax returns and whether he has to hand them over to Congress or to officials. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how he handles that. Um, OK, we got an exorbitant amount of questions about veganism. Um, and before we get to those, I had one more question from David, um, which actually is something I personally am curious to know your answer to. So David wants to know if he, if one were to raise their own chickens in the backyard or whatever and treated them well, gave them space, let them die a natural death, etc., would it be wrong or ethically suspect to eat their eggs? And I'll add to that, there's kind of this movement of free-range eggs um, that I'm, I would like to tack onto that question, if, how you feel about those companies. So to to the to the question itself, um, the way I think about this is that there's a difference between suffering and killing. I am not particularly – I don't want to say that I am not in any way concerned, but the idea that you would hunt and kill an animal or much more so that you would raise an animal and eat its eggs just doesn't – it's not something that I spend my time worrying about. Um, it – and particularly not the latter. There are some vegans who what they worry about is the exploitation of any animals by human beings. And so if you're exploiting an animal, which arguably you're doing in that chicken um, uh, example, maybe you're doing something wrong. I just don't buy that. Uh, I think that unfortunately life on earth is a lot about exploitation. Nature itself is not a super nice thing and there are very, very few ways to live that are truly nonviolent. And so if you're treating a chicken well and you're getting its eggs then eating it when it drops dead um, – I think good on you. <laughs> I think you've probably made that chicken's life better than it would otherwise be. And that might even go for if you're raising animals well and letting them live out a natural lifespan and even slaughtering them at a certain point for food. I think you can make a real I think you can make a totally reasonable argument that some of those animals at the very least might be in better shape than they would be otherwise. There's a particular complication around chickens in that the question is what is happening to the chickens born who cannot lay eggs? If you're getting them from somewhere that is grinding up male chickens, which, by the way, one reason um, people like me are, are pretty against eggs is that even though they don't seem like they cause a lot of violence, one, hen, the egg-laying hens are very badly mistreated by industrial agriculture. But two, a lot of places that um, raise chickens to be egg-laying hens, well, a lot of male chickens are born too. And what happens to the male chickens? They're thrown into a grinder, um, literally thrown into a grinder. So there's a lot of uh, violence encoded in that. Anyway, that said, I do not worry about people's backyard chickens really at all for any reason. <laughs> I worry about the amount of suffering that is involved in industrial agriculture. I'm much more concerned about an animal that spends all of its life like in a cage where it basically can't turn around or in an overcrowded, dark shed than I am about an animal that lives a normal life and then is killed for food. And then to your question about free range, I've talked to a lot of people in the animal rights movement about this. I think consensus is most things that say free range on them may or may not be a little bit better than conventional eggs, but are mostly not a lot better. Uh, so it is very hard to source this stuff well. A lot of the practices involved in these Humane regulations and stuff are not well regulated. What they mean is often not fixed anywhere and um, it's very poorly enforced. And so it is very hard to source things really well. It is not impossible and some people do it. But, you know, if you're going to Safeway and looking for the thing that says free range on it to assuage um, concern that the animals were mistreated – it's saying free range does not in any way mean those chickens didn't have a horrible life, unfortunately. And if you just Google this, you will find a lot of 
very unnerving evidence and video and so on about it. Okay, so I want to move into some questions about veganism uh, as we got ton, ton, ton questions about that. Um, so first, would you share your own journey to becoming a vegan? Yeah, um, as Jeff mentions, I think this and like what advice do I have for people going vegan were the two most popular questions, which I appreciate. It means um, some of this, my my pounding the table on this one issue is, is having effect. See, people are persuadable. My journey to becoming vegan isn't interesting. The only part about it that I think might be interesting is I found it very hard and I found the movement on eating very hard because you're making a big change that the world is not set up to support. And so two things about that that I personally found helpful. One is that I made that change very much in stages. When vegetarianism stuck, it stuck in phases finally for me, which is to say for a while I was vegetarian except for when I traveled and except for sort of like found me, like I would like have a bite of somebody else's burger or somebody, you know, like if it was like leftover at something, I would eat meat. And I would have sushi with my best friend's mom a couple times a year, like that kind of thing. So I'd cut my meat consumption down a lot, but in a way where it wasn't that hard for me and that worked. And then slowly as I got more used to that, the other things began coming out, right? I became vegetarian when I traveled. Um, I eventually cut out that sushi. I um, stopped eating meat off of other people's plates. When I went Vegan, I did so with similar sort of like a similarly phased set of steps. I was like vegan but vegetarian when I travel, which by the way is still true. Um, I'm vegan at home. When I'm out at somebody's house or when I'm traveling, I'll typically eat – I'm like – I'm not super strict on myself about dairy. Uh, So I'm always careful that – you know, or I try to be careful that I – like I count myself as a vegan, but not every vegan would count me as a vegan and like that is fine. Uh, People can – people can have different views on this. But – I try to keep something where it is not so hard for me to sustain it that I will fail because if I fail, I find it's a pretty – like what people tend to do when they fail at a diet or something like that isn't just fail and then get right back to it. It's having failed. They will often – having violated that idea of themselves, they will often shuck the whole thing overboard. So, well, I was vegetarian but now I had this burger because I was traveling and there were no other good options or I was hungry and didn't have a lot of self-control. And so fuck it, I'm just back to eating meat again. And so what I'm trying to do is keep that from happening to myself and recognize that it's not a purity code. Like I'm trying to do a better job in a world that is not set up for this. And so, you know, I try to make it um, doable. So at home where I have a lot of control over what I eat, I'm full vegetarian. Um, The less control I have, the softer I am, but I'm only soft, you know, up to dairy. Uh, I, I don't really do eggs. So that's kind of the journey to at least it's sticking as a dietary thing. In terms of its ideological dimensions, I've talked a bit about this, but um, but I sort of believed what I needed to believe on this for a very long time. It was simply making – being able to like actually focus on it and make it stick and you know, to some degree I was sort of led – it was my wife who made this transition first and I think that um, – that's a good example of Peter Singer's thing about how we tend to do our social reasoning in um, – our, our moral reasoning socially. And so if people change around you, um, you're likely – you're it's easier for you to change and you're likely to stick to that change. So the, the one big piece of advice I get because I got this question a lot and I don't want to pretend that I'm somebody who knows how everybody else should go vegan or anything like that. I'll just say that something that was true for me and I would urge other people to do, a lot of people will say something like, you know, I'd go vegan but I just can't get rid of X. So don't. Just don't. Go vegetarian and don't get rid of burgers. For a long time, I was vegan, but I would give myself three burgers a month. Like that was true for like four months. And then I stopped eating those burgers. But 
I'm, you know, Bruce Friedrich is an example of somebody who would, you know, he, he knows somebody who says, I'd go vegan, but I can't not have cream in my coffee. And they'll say, great, don't have cream in your coffee. <laughs> like, that's fine. <laughs> like, just do the rest of it. So if you think you can, like, what matters is cumulative impact. And like, that's the difference between it being symbolic and it being actually about animals, right? What you care about is not like how good you are at it, but what the effect you're having on the world is. And so if what you can do is you can cut meat consumption for environmental reasons or humane reasons or whatever by 85%, great. Don't let the fact that you can't do it by 100 make it so you don't do it at all. Like that's crazy town. If what you think you can do is be vegan before 6 p.m., great. Like that's wonderful. Um, If you want to be vegan except when you travel or just vegan, like it all works. And then over time, it gets easier for you. And then maybe you make a different decision. I mean, the weirdest thing to me is just over time, I've lost my taste for meat um, for a long time. And this was – it's much harder at the beginning because you haven't lost that. For a long time, I was not eating meat, but I really, really, really wanted to eat meat. And now I'm not. Now, like, I've been doing this long enough that I'm kind of grossed out by it. And so now it's easy because doing the other thing is what would be hard. But recognize that it's a hard thing to do. Recognize a world is set up so you don't do it. So make it easy. Take baby steps. Do things that you can succeed in. And don't, don't, don't set up something where you'll fail. Because a lot of people, when they fail, they fail – like they think of it as failure. And they, so they go all the way out, right? Well, I tried and I failed. But you're not failing. Like you're just reducing impact on the margin. So if you have a meal with meat, fine. No big deal. Like that's fine. You know, you were just trying to cut back anyway. Be soft on yourself, right? It's a tough thing to do. Don't, don't, don't try to overdo it all at once. Cool. So um, as this is the last episode, this will be the last episode of 2019, um, I have a couple of questions for you uh, in that vein. So um, what are some key takeaways from 2019 that, you, that you're going to think about moving forward? I think the thing for me is that in 2019, I to just be like kind of personal about it, I had a baby. I finished a book. I started the impeachment podcast and like tried to continue doing my job and being a husband and a father and a son and a family man. And I'm just totally exhausted. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, my book tour, uh, which the first leg of my book tour, and some people have noted, um, you know, asked me where other things are and they're coming. Um, the first bit of the book tour is about doing media. So it's concentrated on places like New York, D.C., L.A. that have a lot of media in them because the live events are sort of just structured around where we're doing other kinds of national media. Um, there'll be another leg that'll come up that'll be in other places. So if you don't see your place on it yet, um, you don't need to worry quite yet. Uh, so... The book tour, the first leg of it anyway, will end around February 14th. And so I'm kind of thinking of, you know, that that is sort of the end of this like really, really intense year. Um, so obviously it's a little bit into 2020, but still. And the thing I'm just going to work on in 2020 um, or after February 14th, 2020, is doing less, um, saying no to more projects, not getting excited about something and then be like, yeah, I'll start a new podcast. Why not? Um, and then a couple months down the road, be like, oh, my God. <laughs> uh, so I want to try to um, force myself to believe for the first time that, like, I did a lot in the last year. And that means I don't need to accelerate into doing even more the next year, that the structure of my life is not such that I can do that. And so doing less is not traditionally something I'm good at. But one of the big lessons for me this year is that um, I have to do a little bit less if I want to be um, – 
good at the things I really care about, like being a father and a husband, but also, you know, being a journalist who writes interesting things or doing this podcast well. I'm not too – I think my output was okay over the year and certainly, you know, in the back half of the year when I was getting more sleep, I think it rebounded to a, an acceptable level. Um, and I'm proud of the book and I'm excited for that to come out. But I don't want to feel like this all the time. Um, this feeling I have constantly where I've worked really hard on something and the payoff of that is I look up and I'm behind on everything else. Like I don't like that feeling and I want to stop having it. So that's something I learned in 2019 and it's more or less my resolution for 2020 is to kind of begin to thin out my project such that having worked on something and completed something big, I can be like, hey, good, good job, Ezra, and take a moment as opposed to I have to turn around and say, well, I've been working my ass off on my book. That means I'm way behind on the podcast. Or, you know, I just did this big series on the podcast. That means I haven't written anything for two weeks. Or, you know, I just finished a feature and that means I'm behind I'm behind on my book. Or, you know, and all like I just like went on, you know, did some reporting travel. So now like I have to pay back on parenting. And everything is operating in this like very ruthless zero-sum time war. And there just have to be fewer, fewer, fewer demands on my time. I can't make more of it. So that's my big that's my big effort for 2020, which I say publicly a little bit as a way to hold myself accountable. <laughs> yeah. I'm actually glad to hear that you were a bit exhausted because uh, for a moment I was not totally convinced that you weren't just like an AI bot that somehow <laughs> puts out five hours of content every week and just explosions. So um, so I think that's pretty much it. Um, the, the last thing I guess I wanted to say was one um, – it's been almost exactly a year since I've been working with you, and I want to. Just oh, another let, thing in this year. <laughs> oh, exactly, and I just want to let you know that it's just been an absolute pleasure. I didn't really know what to expect when I was coming into this, um, and the last thing I just wanted to know, like, if you want to answer this, maybe not. Just kind of the state of the show, like where are we at? What are your goals for next year? We've done some clusters. We did the climate series. Uh, what 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 do you think moving forward for the show? Oh, that's a good question, and we should do. We need to do more talking on it. Um, I've liked. I didn't. I'm not super happy with how I sequenced the climate change cluster, having that kind of five-week um, drop in the middle as we got things rescheduled. But I really liked doing that um, series because it, like, I learned a lot from it, and I think the audience did too. And so I probably want to do more of that, but in a less difficult way. Uh, one thing I'm trying to do is think about weeks as having a theme. So, you know, there will be a week coming that has like, you know, a socialist and a conservative making the arguments for their respective like approaches to life. And, you know, I'd like to do a week or even a couple weeks about AI issues. And we had a sort of a little bit ad hoc, but not entirely ad hoc, like moral philosophy three-parter, you know, where we talked to Peter Singer and Michael Schur and Pam um, Hieronymi and uh, uh, Wayne Jung. And so... I want to keep doing that where I explore something for a couple of episodes because it allows me, I think, to do it in a deeper and more interesting way. Um, and then the other thing that I really want to do for the show this year, and Roger is doing a lot of work on this, and and he's also, you know, not not being here, uh, not a year, but he's been, um, you know, I think this year we sort of like figured out the show's team, which has been really great, and I'm very grateful to both of you. But he's working on this question of how do we do community on the show. And I'm a little caught on that question because on the one hand, um, I really want there to be a community around the show and I don't want it to all be around me. I want the community to be able to talk to each other and to have ideas and discussions. And and on the other hand, some of the obvious ways to do it through social media, given that the show is partially one of its themes is a skepticism of some social media. Uh, I'm not sure I want to do it on one of the major platforms. Now, maybe we do, right? Maybe, you know, you you 
<laughs> like life is complicated like that. But there's got to be something. Um, and so we're trying to figure that out. So I want to build a little bit more of a self-sustaining community around the show. Right now, people can email me, but that's almost the only interaction you can have. But the show has built a very rich community. It's built, thankfully, a very big audience. And so some way for that audience to enrich each other and communicate with each other, I think would be really valuable. Um, I don't know how many people who are on the show are part of the Weeds Facebook group, but that's a really great group. Um, I'm really admiring of what that has become and what people do there. And so I would like to figure out something where the people who care about what this show is about can kind of have a similar level of internal engagement. So those are the two, those are the two big things, sort of deeper explorations of particular of particular issues and themes, and then building some community dimension that makes sense for the audience and makes sense given at least what this show's values are. If I got those two things done in 2020 for it, I'd be pretty happy. I've had you, uh, I appreciate you asking the questions, but before we go, I, I want to ask you this. The question I used to end the show, <laughs> oh, no. which is either, either, um, what are three books or uh, what are three episodes you would recommend to people? Uh, so I think I'm going to go with podcasts. Um, so I think my fa- my overall favorite podcast episode of the year was actually the one you did with Michael Lewis. Um, I just thought that, you know, he got, he kind of got you to open up in a way that was really um, revealing and helpful for for the audience to hear. Um, and I just thought some of his stories and and his methods were super fascinating and the way that he gets his subjects to open up. Um, I just thought I, I'd never heard anything like that before. And I just um, I, I'm a big fan of his work and his books and his movies. And and I so I, I really, really enjoyed that one. Um, I think the second episode I would recommend is the most re- one of the most recent ones is the one that you'd had with Mike Schur and uh, Pam Hieronymi. And um I'm a big fan of Mike Schur's work, um, so I thought that was going to kind of be the key takeaway for me, just like loving to hear from him about himself. But beyond that, it was really cool to hear his overall theories on life um, and how Pam, you know, kind of employing Pam to help position his his work. Um, and really, you could hear from him how some of his theories and concepts changed from having her on board. Um, so I thought that that was a really, really, uh, really cool episode. Um and then I think the, I think that this was this year. Uh, your 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 conversation with Andrew Sullivan. Um, I thought that that was fascinating. Just first first, just meeting Andrew Sullivan. Um, I you know I've been a fan of his work for a long time, uh, and just knowing that you're a little bit of conflict that you've had with him. Just uh, hearing you guys kind of hash it out was really great audio, um, and I thought it played really well to an audience. Um, and. I think you can see a theme with my with my favorites. But yeah, I think those are the three that I'd go with. It's the end of the year, but this show has been um, a project now going on a couple of years, but it's very much um, my favorite thing that I do. And I really appreciate that so many people give um, us so much time every week. It's a little bit crazy to think how much time some some people have with me in their ears or at least with our guests in their ears. And I know that stuff is valuable. Um, and it's a lot of it's a lot of confidence and a lot of trust, and I get a lot out of it, and I get a lot out of the emails and all the rest of it. So thank you to all of you. We're grateful for you here at the show, and hopefully we will continue to make it um, as worth it as we can in 2020. We'll see you in 2020. 